Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up... It's colorless and odorless, and a serious cause of global warming. Methane can now be tracked from space. New satellites provide a constantly updated map at which you could look and see where any leaks were coming from. And how there is more than meets the eye when it comes to the wings of butterflies. We have to look at the wing slightly differently because also on those wings are modifications that allow the wing to reflect near-infrared light. But first, the race is on to develop a vaccine to contain the new coronavirus. With the death toll nearing 500, fears are growing that it is on course to become a pandemic. The Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, known as CEPI, is spearheading efforts to fast-track the development of the vaccine. Richard Hatchett, the chief executive of CEPI, told us what they're doing. We've been on high alert since early January, uh, watching as the epidemiologic situation in China has progressed. And very early on, we made the decision that it would be wise to begin the development of vaccine candidates. And we have now, as the situation has continued to unfold, made the decision to accelerate the full development of those candidates. At this point, we have established four projects to develop vaccines against the novel coronavirus using cutting-edge technology. We have also established a partnership, a collaboration with GSK to make their adjuvant technology available to support the rapid development of of our candidate vaccines. And we are supporting a number of other related projects that will be critical to enable the rapid development of vaccines. Our goals are to be able to take a a vaccine candidate from the release of the uh, genetic sequence of a vaccine to have a vaccine candidate ready for testing in clinical trials within 16 weeks. That is an incredibly, incredibly aggressive uh, and ambitious timeline, but we believe that uh, the partners that we are working with uh, may in fact, uh, if all goes well, and there are a lot of variables certainly, but they may be able to reach that timeline. I think vaccines, uh, we we have to anticipate a minimum of, of a year before any vaccines, even in the best possible circumstances, uh, would become more broadly available. Slaveya Chenkova is the Economist healthcare correspondent. Slaveya, are these targets realistic? What Richard said is obviously quite ambitious. Normally, vaccine development takes years from the research that happens in the lab to the stage where a vaccine is ready to be actually injected in human volunteers for the very first clinical trials. However, there have been many technological innovations in recent years that make vaccine development much faster. 
And what are some of those innovations? So historically, vaccines have been developed from viruses or the pathogens against which they are designed. And scientists would often work with the live virus. They would try to weaken it in some way um, and then use that as the component of the vaccine to induce some immune response in the people who get the vaccine. Newer technologies, however, rather than using the actual virus, use just the genetic sequence of it. They would, for example, use uh, the genetic code for a specific protein that the virus uses to infect human cells, and then put that bit of the genetic code in some sort of vehicle, which could be a harmless virus or a loop of DNA or RNA, which becomes uh, the actual vaccine. So that makes the development of a vaccine in the lab much quicker. It's also simpler because, you know, if you have a deadly virus, uh, you need special precautions in the lab as well as during manufacturing. So have vaccines actually used these new techniques to be developed faster? Yes, uh, some of these uh, methods have already been used to develop several vaccines against, for example, Zika, Ebola, influenza, malaria. They're relatively new techniques. So the vaccines that have been developed have, for the most part, been only through early stage clinical trials. So obviously, there are lots of uncertainties of how a possible vaccine uh, against the coronavirus will behave in larger scale clinical trials. And what about the manufacturing process? What are some of the innovations there? So usually the way uh, vaccine manufacturing works, the labs would produce something called seed stock of the vaccine, which then goes to a manufacturing facility. And that's where it's uh, purified and made into the vaccine that's put in vials or administering to patients in clinical trials. Now, at this stage, there is a wide range of tests required by regulators to ensure that the vaccine in the vials is safe. So the vaccine will be tested for contaminants. It will be grown in cell culture to see if there are any viruses that should not be there. And that process can take several months, probably about five months at least for some types of vaccines. There are some ways to shorten this if, for example, everything that's in the vial is sequenced and that DNA uh, record is reviewed, scientists have found ways to identify whether DNA traces of unwanted contaminants are in there. So if this kind of testing procedure is approved by regulators, then that part of the manufacturing process can be shortened considerably. And what about the regulatory system? Are they able to fast-track it through the clinical trials? How does that work? Yes. Uh, during the Zika and Ebola um, outbreaks, some of these vaccines were indeed fast-tracked, both on the manufacturing side as well as on the approvals for clinical trials. The Ebola trial here in the UK, for example, uh, the first stage when the vaccine was tested for safety in healthy volunteers, it only took a couple of days. Normally, it may take uh, two to three months. Okay, so although it doesn't help China right now in the midst of a crisis, it does mean for other parts of the world, we can get ahead of it by starting to vaccinate the population. A vaccine would probably not be available for at least a year for wider use because there are several uh, levels of clinical trials that need to happen before it is approved. However, depending on how this outbreak unfolds, if the new coronavirus becomes an established disease, then obviously in future years, a vaccine developed in the next couple of months will be useful. So who are the organizations working on this? So the organizations that are currently doing this work are 
mostly small biotechnology companies as well as several academic research institutions. The National Institutes of Health in America is also at work on a vaccine. The only big pharmaceutical company that is doing this is is Johnson & Johnson. So Big Pharma has largely stayed out of this for now. It sounds like the world is a little bit more prepared for this virus than it was in previous ones. Is it because we learned from the last responses to previous viruses that we're applying this time around? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, CEPI was established post-Ebola in 2017. Governments put in tons of money to develop these systems, which uh, they call them plug-and-play systems. So you develop a way to uh, rapidly manufacture a vaccine against a pathogen that you know was previously unknown. And these investments are definitely paying off. And because the novel virus is a coronavirus, that also helps uh, because some of these efforts have actually being put towards the development of vaccines against SARS and MERS, which are two uh, related coronaviruses. Well, it seems like the planning that went in after the previous outbreaks are being put to good use. Yes, that's right. And this is the test case for them. Great. Sylvia, thanks a lot. Thank you, Ken. You can read more about the new coronavirus in The Economist, in print, online, and in the app. And if you're not a subscriber, you can get one now. Go to economist.com slash radiooffer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And you can tell them Ken sent you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. Next up, when it comes to climate change and the environment, the focus is often on carbon dioxide emissions. But one of the worst offenders from greenhouse gases is methane. Methane is a particularly nasty greenhouse gas. I mean, it doesn't linger in the atmosphere anywhere near as long as carbon dioxide, but uh, the trouble is it's much more potent at heat trapping. Paul Markley is The Economist Innovation Editor. About a quarter of man-made global warming is thought to be caused by methane. So... Who's throwing it up into the atmosphere? Who are the main offenders? Well, methane is the main constituent of natural gas. And so a lot of it gets emitted um, from the actual extraction process itself and also from leaks from the oil and gas industry. The, you know, the gas is leaking out of equipment, leaking out of wells, and sometimes wells blow and a lot goes out. Now, there's good news, however. What's going on? Well, it looks like satellites are pretty good at spotting these leaks from space. And there's been a couple of instances. One with a little satellite called Claire, what we call a nanosat. This is only about the size of a microwave oven. Spotted a a big plume of methane leaking over Turkmenistan. These satellites are very good at looking in detail at where the leaks are occurring. And it isolated these down to a compressor station and somewhere near the pipeline. And then through diplomatic channels, this was fed back and eventually those leaks were stopped. But the amount of gas that came out was enormous. Now, I'm a little bit lost. How is it that we were able to identify through the satellite imagery a leak? 
Methane can be detected with an instrument called a spectrometer. Now, this looks at light, and uh, because methane absorbs a characteristic wavelength of light, you can look at the light being bounced back from the surface of the Earth in the area around, say, where uh, oil and gas installation is. And if you see that proportion of light missing from the the wavelength, you can say there's methane here, and you can then look in more detail. And there's a big satellite out there that can do this over a broad area, and there's like this little nanosat that can look in great detail. So why can't we do that from Earth? Why can't we just take a photograph of that area? Well, you probably could with an aeroplane, but uh, you know, aeroplanes aren't up there all the time, or maybe use a drone. But satellites are going around the world all the time, so they can provide constant monitoring. And other new satellites are, are being launched that will be able to do this and provide a constantly updated map at which you could look and see where any leaks were coming from. So you say could do this. Is it being done or is this just hypothetical? Well, we have the one nanosat called Claire up there by a Montreal company. We have a, a big spectrometer on an instrument by the European Space Agency. Claire is out there to monitor leaks specifically for companies in the oil and gas industry and others as well. And another one called MethaneSat is uh, going up shortly. Uh, and that's uh, run by an American nonprofit organization, the Environmental Defense Fund. And that too will provide public data on where it can see methane leaks. This is interesting. This is like methane bounty hunters. So surely if they find a leak, they should go to the company, get it patched up, but they should get some of the revenue that the company saves. Well, they could do that. Um, one, of, one of the companies says, well, you know, uh, we'll provide images at different resolutions, of course. You know, if you wanted to look in great detail to find out exactly where it's coming from, then um, you could pay us some money and we'll look in greater detail. Or if you'd like to hire us to regularly survey all your installations and let you know when there's a leak, then you could hire us. And there's that model. And there's also the sort of public... Uh, benefit model where we will publish information online so that uh, people can look themselves and pressure could be applied to somebody who's not fixing their leak fast enough. That's known as methane shaming in the trade. It's methane hunting and possibly shaming. And uh, the idea of a big bird up there watching over you could in fact get companies to act a little bit more quickly if they spot a big leak. That's fascinating. Paul, thank you very much. Pleasure, Ken. Finally, butterfly wings can be one of the most beautiful things in nature. But there is more to them than meets the eye. Far from being dead tissue, butterfly wings are sophisticated living organs. Butterflies use their wings to fly and to disperse, but they also use them to signal to each other. Dr. Nomi Pierce of Harvard University is one of the world's leading lepidopterists. Yes, butterfly experts. And she's teamed up with a physicist, Nan Feng Yu, to investigate the mysteries of butterfly wings. And what this research showed that was a little bit different is that we have to look at the wing slightly differently because also on those wings are modifications that allow the wing to reflect near-infrared light. Tell me about the form that your research took. What did you actually do together? Well, we started out looking at the antennae, and we did a, a little bit of electroantennagram work where we looked to see whether or not the males were responding to simply to broadband infrared, um, and that was interesting. Somewhere fairly early on in that first exploration, we started talking about wings, 
and I was enthusiastic at that time about a group of Lysenid butterflies. Those are the blues, coppers, and hair streaks. The uh, structures on their wings, the males have interesting androconial scent pads and patches on their wings where they emit pheromones that are attractive to females. And some of those patches are, I mean, they, they look a little, the scales on them look different, and I thought that was interesting, and, and he did too. So, um, so he had designed a, a special um, combination microscope uh, spectrophotometer that was tuned to the near-infrared, where you could put the wings onto a, it was on, it's onto this beautiful golden plate, so that uh, as you shine a infrared light through the wing, it bounces back and you get, uh, it gives you the signals in the near infrared that are coming from that wing surface. These are the longer wavelengths. And the reason the near infrared matters is because 50% of the energy coming from the sun is in that part of the um, spectrum. So when a butterfly is out in the sunshine, most of the energy coming from the sun hitting its wings, which are very delicate membranes, most of that energy is coming from the near-infrared. So being able to reflect near-infrared or modulate temperatures in the near-infrared really matters for a butterfly with delicate wings. Now, people had thought about temperature regulation in butterflies before, but the focus had been entirely on how warm does the thorax need to be in order to fly? Um, and part of that's because it's uh, only the tools to be able to look at temperatures in membranes as thin and light as wings um, has, have only come online fairly recently, looking at nanostructuring of scales and uh, um, uh, being able even to measure the temperature of that uh, very thin membrane of the wing. So I understand that this was science for knowledge's sake, but was there any practical applications of the research? So inspired by the nanostructuring of the scales on the wings of these butterflies, Nanfang got together with other colleagues of his at Columbia University, and they designed a paint, a very inexpensive and easy-to-apply paint that, that had, is made in a polymer base that creates little bubbles about the same size as the little holes that we were seeing on the wing scales and the nanostructuring of the wing scales. And if you apply that paint to a, a, a roof during the summertime, and I think they tested this in Bangladesh and New York and um, Phoenix, it reduced the air conditioning cost by about 30%. So there's a, the very practical bioinnovation side of this, which is really what Nanfang is interested, the physicists are, were interested in, turned out to be, I mean, well, quite inspiring to me, you know, that you could take something as lovely as a, a butterfly wing and make something so useful from it. Novi, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, a five-star rating. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.